today is Henry Kastner. Henry is a managing principal at Sovereign's Capital and a contributor and podcaster at the faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. Sovereign's Capital comprises a family of funds across venture and private equity in the U.S. and Southeast Asia. Sovereign's Capital invests in leaders whose faith and values create a workplace culture that is about business excellence and community citizenship. Henry is also the co-founder and former CEO and chairman of the board at Bandwidth, which is a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ under stock ticker BAND, B-A-N-D. I'm excited to talk to Henry today about his core values, his approach to faith and work, and how he's working on inspiring a generation of faith-based entrepreneurs to make a lasting impact on our world. So without further ado, Henry, welcome to the Circle of Confidence podcast. Ben, thank you. It's great to be a part of the circle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I first met Henry, was very fortunate to meet Henry um, as a sophomore in college when he lived in Durham, North Carolina. We lost a, uh, a huge uh, North Carolina, North Carolinian uh, when he moved away to California, but it's understandable. He was kind enough to serve as a mentor in a ministry that I co-founded with a guy named Dan Copeland, who was my mentor uh, in terms of faith and business. When I was a student, <clears throat> we founded this ministry that paired uh, young Christian business students to, uh, to older, uh, more experienced, uh, businessmen around the area. And so Henry was kind enough to be a part of that. And so I've, we've kept in touch since. And I reached out to see if he could come on the podcast to talk about what he's doing with Sovereign's Capital and Faith Driven Entrepreneur. So Henry, just to level set, maybe give us, you know, the three to five minute update on, you know, where you're at today and sort of what led you up to where you are now. So uh, Ben, so awesome being with you again. Um, uh, where I am now, I'm in Northern California, running a couple of ministries. One's called Faith Driven Entrepreneur that you mentioned, and then the other one's called Faith Driven Investor. And um, it's been a great joy to do both of those. They're both an, um, an outshoot of uh, the work that I've done uh, as an entrepreneur, as an investor. So as you talked about, um, start off life as an entrepreneur, actually start off life in Wall Street, then did the entrepreneurial thing in North Carolina. And through to bandwidth and then started Sovereign's Capital. And now really I'm just uh, focused on coming alongside men and women who are serious about their faith, who want to be a blessing to their communities and to others and have business excellence. And um, I've been out here in Northern California now for about five years doing that. That's amazing. So I've, I have heard uh, bits and pieces about the bandwidth story, but I think just for people who may not be familiar, maybe give a two minute background on what it was like running it in the, in the early days, how you came together with your partner yeah. and, uh, and how that all progressed. And then we can kind of go from there. Yeah. So I moved down from New York City to, uh, to Chapel in North Carolina in 1997 and had started a financial derivatives trading company and uh, with a guy that, that you and I know, Tom Hahn ultimately sold that and started this company called Bandwidth. And I had recently come to faith. Uh, I, when I was in my 20s in New York City, faith wasn't a part of my life at all, but I had a major faith conversion event at 28. And so when I met this guy, David Morkin, um, and we decided to start this company called Bandwidth, we wanted to be really intentional about our cultural values. And they were faith first, then family, then work, and then fitness in that order. And um, we set out to, to launch a business that would help businesses find uh, better access to internet service, uh, T1s, T3s, things like that, kind of like an Expedia to internet access. And um, we um, spent through the money that we had had for the first two and a half years or so and, and found ourselves out of money. 
And so we went out to where I live now in Northern California at the place called Sand Hill Road and went up and down and talked to all the big VCs. And we wouldn't talk about our cultural values on the first visit. We wouldn't, didn't have fish on our business cards or anything like that. But when it came around to a second or third visit or site visit, we'd say, listen, you know, we've got this culture and we want to be about honoring God and faith first and family work and fitness. And as we said that, we got a lot of blank stares. And really feel that in the best case scenario, we were misunderstood. In a worst case scenario, we think we were prejudiced against a bit as we got some back channel on that. And we said, listen, to be very clear, we want to run an excellent business. And we're not going to be a holy huddle. We're going to hire the best person for the job. But we really want to get out there and, and, and run a business that's consistent with who we want to be as individuals. And so we went 0 for 40 in venture raises in this long, hard slog. And I uh, came back um, and raised just a little bit of money from friends and family, $15,000 a year, $25,000 there. And um, it ended up being a huge blessing because it meant that David and I continue to uh, have control of the company. We're, we're a publicly traded company, but we have control of the company because we didn't give up that ownership of the company early on. And uh, we got a great chance to expand the company. And and 20 years on, um, Republic Wireless has come out of that. That's a, a privately held company. It's still in existence. And then there's bandwidth, which we got a chance to take public under David's leadership about three years ago. Let's just take a step back. So a lot of entrepreneurs today, when they go and raise these, these early rounds of capital from venture, and this might just be more of a macro venture question, <clears throat> they give up a lot of ownership in exchange for a lot of money. Um, I mean, some of the check sizes today are enormous uh, yeah. for some of these companies that are backed by like the likes of <clears throat> SoftBank. Um, I'm curious if if it was more of a function of, okay, so you guys are Christians and this is a culture and so maybe you were prejudiced against, or did you make a conscious decision to try and bootstrap as much as possible or was it sort of a combination of the two? Yeah, so uh, I'm glad you asked that to bring that back up. There are lots of reasons to not invest in this. It wasn't just like, oh my goodness, these guys are a bunch of Jesus freaks. We got to get them out of the office. It was never like that. There are right. lots of different pragmatic reasons. We were... This is back in 2000, 2001, 2002. Uh, telecom was blowing up. Oh, wow. Uh, Dot-com bubble had burst. I mean, wow. there were a bunch of different things. Of course, we thought we were on to something. And through the grace of God, we were on to something. As it turns out, it worked out really well. But um, there are lots of different reasons to not invest in this. But you're right. Um, every entrepreneur uh, gets to this spot where they're trying to figure out, how do I grow the business? And how much capital do I need? And I've been through that now several different times. Interestingly, now I'm on the other side. We started this venture capital fund called Sovereign's Capital, and we provide capital for different businesses. But my first startup, actually, and having moved down from New York City to Chapel Hill, is I maxed out all the credit cards. And, and I tried to raise money for this business that I thought made a lot of sense, but I couldn't get anybody to invest even a dollar in it. And so the, but I was still resolute and I still wanted to make it happen. And so I maxed out all my credit cards, $85,000 of credit card debt. It's very hard to do in 1997 to get that much debt, but uh, uh, I was able to do it. And, and um, you know, you, there's this, there's this time where an entrepreneur tries to figure out, you know, most entrepreneurs think they need to raise money if they're going to expand. Uh, and there are all these competing pressures of, oh my goodness, if I don't raise enough money, I'm not going to grow fast enough and some, some uh, competitor is going to come out there and squash me. So it's time to market. Or um, in some cases, it's I really need this big piece of, of, of equipment or something like that and I've got I've to bring that in or I need to do some sort of big development or something like that. I think that most cases, 
or at least half the cases, the entrepreneur actually doesn't need to raise money. That's, I've seen that happen twice. Twice I've been absolutely convinced I need to raise outside capital. And twice I didn't raise it. And twice I'm very glad I didn't raise it. It worked out great for me in the, in the long run. And, um, and then the, the other thing that I think that a lot of entrepreneurs need to be aware of, in addition to, am I really convinced I have to raise money, uh, is number two is, uh, how much money do I raise and who do I raise it from? You know, as soon as you bring on board an institutional capital partner, they're going to want to see you grow as fast as you possibly can. And the way that the machinations of the industry often work is they want to, uh, over the course of the next, the first couple of years, to see you double in size so that you raise more money and they can get a markup in value. And, and that's okay if you know that. If you know going in, hey, I'm going to go back on the road and raise money again in one year's time to, you know, continue to grow but it becomes a challenge because um, what you miss is this concept of the optimal growth rate. When you have a lot of outside funding coming in, there's a lot of pressure to grow, which sometimes can equate to buying customers. When you're running a business, you want to run a business that really seeks to serve a community or solve a problem. And you want customers to be delighted in what you do. You want your customers to be delighted in what you do so much so that they always stay with you. It's one of the things that a lot of business people miss is this kind of this mix between buying customers and keeping customers. Most businesses, especially over the last decade, have missed that. They've missed that it's much better to keep a customer happy that would otherwise have churned than to buy a new one. New capital comes in, gives you this incentive to go out there and to grow. You end up buying customers. Each additional marginal customer that you bring on board costs more money. The people who um, would use your product or service and are most acutely feel the problem that you're solving tend to find you. They, and as a result, they're very cheap. Those are also the types of people who are most delighted and tend to tell other people and refer business in. It's also cheap. They also tend to stay with you the longest, which means they don't churn. But if you go on a Google or Facebook and you need to accelerate the pace of growth, all of a sudden now your customers are becoming decreasingly loyal they're more expensive to acquire, and they're much more apt to churn. And a lot of entrepreneurs miss that dynamic. And um, yeah. It's, <clears throat> I want to hone in on that a little bit. It, that to me seems like a prescriptive cause for high revenues, but high, uh, incredibly high losses. Whereas if you have uh, these, rev these revenues that are consistently recurring um, and growing and the net promoter scores are through the roof, then you have the opportunity to, to potentially uh, profit off of those customers while serving their actual needs. Is that sort of how you think about it as well? Or? Well, yeah. So what happens is you grow a little bit slower, which allows, you, which allows cash flows to catch up with growth. And um, again, um, your customers are cheaper to bring on board. And, and they stay around longer. Um, as soon as you start to throttle up the growth a little bit, all of those dynamics start to degrade in the name of top line growth. Now, other people might say, no, it's, you're, you're oversimplifying. It's actually, it's about market share and it's about the competitive dynamic. It's about building a moat. It's about um, you know, staving off, you know, just protecting your business from other people that would otherwise come in and take it. And you're playing the long game. You're playing the 10 to 20 year game. And that's why you're doing those things. Um, I, don't, I don't think that that's, the case so much. I think that I think that once upon a time there's this concept that you'd invest in a business because you thought it would make money. 
And uh, somewhere along the way, we lost that. And I, I, I hope that we recapture it. Right before we went on air, we talked about a business opportunity that's cash flowing right now. That's, uh, that's something that's really attractive. Uh, you know, when you look at a business like the one we were talking about, you know that customers value the business. You know that you can service them in a cost-effective way. And uh, there's something really attractive about that. And when you can buy companies out there now at, or invest in companies or, or buy them uh, at four to five times EBITDA, why would you, on the flip side, get sucked into this other kind of venture vortex where you're buying into companies at 10 times revenues? Right? Somewhere along the way, the math doesn't work out. And yet, to be clear, I'm a, I've, I own a venture capital firm, right? And so there are companies that do want to grow, do, that do need to grow for a bunch of different dynamics. But because of my experience as an entrepreneur, I want to make sure that I work with the entrepreneur and help them to understand that dynamic. The first question they need to be asking and they need to be able to answer convincingly is, how do you know you need money? Why don't you just continue going this same route? Why don't you just grow at 20% next year? So they have to be able to have, they need to be able to convince me and my partners that indeed they do need this money, that they've got a plan for it, that they can see a pathway to profitability. And, uh, and then in that, those cases, it becomes a great honor and a great blessing to come alongside great companies like Cloud Factory, which is in Durham, North Carolina that you know, and, and so many others, and get to be a part of their story as their partner in things. And then also in that relationship, work with them about uh, looking at customer acquisition costs, lifetime value, churn, delighting customer, et cetera. I think, I think you sort of imply a really uh, good thing to keep in mind. And this is one of the reasons why I really wanted to have a conversation with you because you've sat on both sides of the table, the entrepreneurial side uh, as well as the investor side. And I think that it's rare to have someone who understands both the operational side of the entrepreneurial, you know, venture side, but also from a uh, capital allocation standpoint, I think, you, I, you know, I, I, I scratch my head at sometimes at some of these deal valuations that I read, uh, you know, in term sheet or Axios, because exactly like you just said, it's the question of, okay, do you need to grow this fast? And do you really need to take uh, this, this amount of money, this size check? Well, I had, um, a guy named uh, Blair Silverberg on the podcast a while back, who is the CEO of a company called uh, Capital Technologies. Mm -hmm. And they help smaller businesses, both venture and non-venture, uh, grow via venture debt. Uh, and they underwrite it using a machine learning algorithm uh, that takes in all of your financial data and sort of underwrites your business and, and, and basically uses AI to underwrite uh, your financials and sort of look at how creditworthy you are. You mentioned that you used credit card debt to start uh, bandwidth or to, to help fund bandwidth. Is debt something that you recommend to entrepreneurs sometimes in, in some cases? If so, why or why not? Yeah, so I used, uh, used credit card debt to start a company called Chapel of Brokers, which was right before bandwidth. But, um, uh, you know, it's really difficult with, uh, with debt. Um, with debt, you have to be right about the idea and you have to be right about the timing. With, uh, with equity, you just have to be right about the idea. You have more, more ability uh, to, 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 to make some errors on the timing side. Debt can be really difficult and it can be really challenging. You have to be really, really committed. Now, it's the least dilutive. 
Um, I'll tell you though, that we didn't use credit card debt to fund bandwidth, but we did use something else. And it's, uh, it's a hybrid. We use convertible debt. And it ended up working out really, really well for us. So I was talking about going and raising money in increments of 15 grand or 25 grand. The facility that we raised that money into was convertible debt. And here's how it worked. Um, we uh, had come back from the West Coast and realized that we weren't going to be able to raise money. So we decided we're going to go out and we're going to try to raise, we're gonna raise, try to raise uh, equity dollars locally. Um, we thought we were worth about $12 million. Uh, the market really thought we were worth about eight. So we said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and we're going to raise money in a convertible debt where we are going to have a convert uh, price at $16 million. So uh, we will, it's a two-year, it was a two-year deal. We said, we're going to have enough cash flow from the business because our business did, didn't cash flow, net cash flow, but it had enough paying customers that these debt holders could see where they're senior in the stack, where they'd be able to get paid a 10% coupon. So this is back 2001, 2002, where interest rates were higher. So we'd pay 10% coupon. And then after two years, they'd have the opportunity to uh, convert their capital in at a $16 million pre-money valuation, which is about twice that which they thought we were worth, right? And what ended up happening was after two years, half those people just asked for their money back. Even though the company was probably worth after two years, it's probably worth 20 or $25 million. And uh, that was beautiful for us. It meant that we had significantly less dilution for two reasons. One is that the people who did convert converted at twice the price we were probably worth when we originally struck the note. And then half of them just asked for their money back. And yes, we had to give them their money back. And that took some of our available capital. But from a dilution standpoint, we ended up four times better than we other would, otherwise would have been, would have, if we raised all that money at an $8 million pre-money valuation. Now, there's some more advanced financial calculations, the time value of money, and the fact that we did have to retire the debt and things like that. But generally, from a cap table perspective, it was significantly less dilutive for us to be able to float this idea of a convertible debt. So that was a combination. It's a combination of debt and equity. And, um, and sometimes that might be the facility. So it doesn't necessarily have to be just like, well, do I do it all by debt or do I do it all by raising uh, venture capital? Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good point. Uh, you know, now that you're on the investing side, is this something that you employ regularly? Do you, um, is this something that your firm does as well? Or do you just rather seek to seek to invest from an equity holder perspective? We do it both ways. We do it both ways. There's convertible notes or we're now called also safes. Um, uh, allow for somebody to come in and then get a discount to the next round uh, in terms of pricing. I don't like them very much. Um, I don't like them because I'd rather put money in and price the deal. And then immediately I'm on the same side of the table as the, as the entrepreneur. If instead I negotiate a deal or the, I come in on a convertible note where I get uh, my price when I convert to equity is say 20% discount to the next round, then um, I'm leaving the valuation decision to somebody else who may not be a very smart investor. And so you can go out and find some dumb money out there that invested a price that's maybe 40% higher than what it should be. And I only I convert in at just a 20% discount to that just inflated price. So that's not a good deal for me. I also, again, want to be really, I want to be strapped to the mass as soon as I possibly can with the entrepreneur. And I don't want, um, I don't want to 
be in a spot where they're at a different spot. They want to get as high a price as possible because they want to suffer as less dilution. And I want as low a price as possible because yeah, I haven't yet. Literally on opposite sides of the deal. table still. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes total sense. Well, before we go to sovereigns, I do want to cover one area that you, you mentioned and that's culture, uh, the culture of bandwidth and maybe talk about the values that you mentioned early, early on. And then how did you come up with those? What was that process like? Was it just an overnight process or was it like a, a meditative weekend? What was that process like? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So is there, uh, uh, is there still a restaurant in Chapel Hill called 411 West? There is. Good. Okay. So David and I went and had dinner at 411 West back in 2000. And this is the point in time in America where corporate culture is starting to be a big deal. I wore like a, I wore like a suit and tie to work all during my twenties. I mean, I've, I still have all these really nice silk ties and, and, and all that, but in around 99, 2000, that all changed and people went from wearing suits and ties every day to t-shirts and jeans and flip-flops. And so it was all about corporate culture and you had everybody need to have a ping pong table and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I went to David, I remember, I remember where we were at 411 West. This is, this is more than 20 years ago now. I said, David, we got to be really intentional about our corporate culture. And he looked at me, he, he doesn't remember saying this, uh, but he did. Uh, he looked at me and said, we can't make up corporate culture. Corporate culture needs to be who we are as individuals. And, uh, and right then it's just like, and, and whether he then said, or then we then, I remember him saying it just like that, but then, um, uh, we just, you know, came up with faith first. So what's important to us? Well, faith is the most important thing to us. I was a new believer. He had been a lifelong Christian. So, um, faith, most important family. Ultimately we have nine kids between us, then, uh, faith and family, then work and then fitness. He's a world-class endurance athlete and so wanted to get out and work out at lunch. And, and that's, that's our culture. That's what we're going to be. We're not going to come up with a whole bunch of corny things like, oh, we're about integrity. We're about other things. Of course, we're about integrity. I mean, who isn't? But, you know, our culture, our values are going to be like who we want to be. And that really helped. Um, and we'd share those foundational values with the folks that joined. And, and, um, and I think that was helpful. But, you know, the biggest thing, the biggest lesson I think that we learned as we tried to promote our foundational values is this concept of the shadow of a leader. And it's actually, it's best described not through a story about bandwidth, but through a story um, from a good friend of mine who's my podcast co-host at the Faith Driven Entrepreneur, a guy named Rusty Roof. And Rusty has been the vice president of HR at Pepsi and at EA. And he talked about the story about being at EA where he's running HR. And for a long time, EA had this CEO who wore dress slacks, kind of dressed up to work every day. I mean, even though it's a video game company, right? So uh, one day he was no longer the CEO. Somebody else came in. I don't know whether he left or he was fired. I don't know the story there. But I do know that the new CEO came in and on his first day, he wore jeans. And why wouldn't he wear jeans? Again, it's a video game company. But without the dress code changing at all, everybody else, oh, maybe I left this out. While the guy was wearing dress slacks, everybody else in the company wore dress slacks too. Okay. Um, the first day this, this new CEO came on board, he wore jeans. The next day, two thirds of the workforce was wearing jeans without having any change in the HR manual. And so what happens for us when we're talking about how family is important to us? Well, it's important for us to get out there and see our kids soccer games, lacrosse games, football games, things like that. Um, but it isn't something you put in the manual. 
You say, here are our values, but then you live them out. It became really easy for Dave and I to live out these cultural values because it's what was important to us. It came naturally. So now at Bandwidth or Republic Wireless, you're going to find that the majority of people leave to go see their kids' athletic games. And that's something that's a value that is celebrated, um, mostly because it's just lived out and it's modeled out, and it has been since the beginning. So there's integrity with who we wanted to be as individuals. On the fitness side, we work out uh, 90 minutes a day at lunchtime. We get out there and, and you, you, you run for an hour, you play ultimate frisbee for an hour, and at bandwidth, we've had the Raleigh City Ice Hockey Champion. We entered a team into the Trans Rockies Mountain Bike Race and finished second. We entered a team into the Race Across America Endurance Cycling Race and won it. Wow. Uh, so it's just part of who we are. Um, and just everybody just kind of just does it as well. Are those now are those values written anywhere like on a wall or anything or is it just kind of like these are our values and everyone sort of knows faith family work fitness yes that's a great question um so i retired from bandwidth um as ceo 10 years ago which is a long time so i stayed as executive chairman for the next six years or so and then as we went public i just moved to the board um and then uh, I gave up my board spot to Luke Rush, my partner at Simon's Capital, two years ago. So it's uh, I'm not involved in the direct day to day anymore. I'm just a massive cheerleader and cheering on my best friend Dave and working as they get out there and they just they ton it. It's been a beautiful thing to see. Um, the uh, the way that we talk about our cultural values has changed over the years. However, we've never abandoned those first four. But it has. Uh, we have gone ahead and talked to, about the whole person. We talk a lot about mission. There's a whole, there are 25 or 30 different values and characteristics that we look to have as a team of a company now that's got well more than a thousand people. But at the, at the base of it, if you go and you talk to any employee at Bandwidth, even today, they'll tell you that ours is a, ours is a culture that values faith and family and work and fitness. And fitness continues. You'd think it didn't, doesn't scale beyond, you know, the first, you know, a bunch of guys in their 20s, they're kind of doing this business together. They're going to get out there. They're going to work out. You know, that's not going to scale when you start to get big and, and start to become as big as bandwidth has become. But it, yet it is. It's com- continued to scale. And now we've got this huge locker room for everybody who works out at lunch. I, I bet you our locker room is bigger than, than IBM's because it's just part of who we are and what we do. I love that. Well, I want to transition to sovereigns. So you, you were part of bandwidth for, for quite some time. And at what point did you feel like you were ready to transition more to, towards a capital allocation role? Was it an overnight decision? Sort of what drove, drove your, your decision to start this firm? Um, yeah. What were the reasons behind it? And, and when, when did that all transpire? Yeah, so the sense, um, gosh, I was probably thirty-six, and I went to a uh, I went to a study with Kimberly uh, with a bunch of people in our church small group about the subject of calling, and I went there ostensibly to help Kimberly to figure out what she was called to do because I knew what I was called to do. I was called to continue to run bandwidth along with David, and and that's what I was going to do forever. It was awesome and really enjoyed it. Through the study, though, um, I became really convinced that, uh, that I was going to be doing something outside of bandwidth at some point in time and that there was an opportunity to do something in ministry. It was, I wasn't completely sure what that looked like or, or 
uh, right away. But I did go to Dave and I said, Dave, listen, by the time I'm 40, which was four years out, um, uh, I know that I want to be doing something outside of bandwidth and ministry. And just, I don't even know what that's going to look like yet. Um, and that really meant that we didn't really do anything about it until I turned 40. And, and then um, what ended up happening with Sovereigns was a reflection that Dave and I both had about the way that God had used us in our leadership at bandwidth and really being able to, despite making a lot of mistakes, to be clear, um, being able to love on our partners and our vendors and our customers and our employees in a way that pointed to a, something bigger than the manufacturing telecom of manufacturing distribution of telecom. And so um, believing that there are real pressures for the average faith driven entrepreneur to repress their faith and why they do what they do. The thought was, what does it look like to take some of the capital that we've had um, uh, and invest it in other companies that might look like us, but are 10 years younger? And what does it look like for us to uh, encourage them as they form their own culture and to help them compete and win and focus on excellence and think, think about things like intellectual property and distribution channels and capitalization and CAC and LTV and things like that. And so uh, that gave birth to Sovereign's Capital, believing that faith-driven entrepreneurs are an incredible market force. They're uh, faith-driven entrepreneurs are cultural change agents. These are people that are solving problems and really blessing communities and so we wanted to come alongside them with investment capital. We also believe that a lot of these companies could succeed not at the expense of biblical values, but because of them. And through the grace of God, our, our fund one, which includes investments in, in companies like Cloud Factory, is in the top quartile of all the funds, and to include a lot of those funds that said no to David and I 10 years before that. And, um, and that's become really a life calling for us. And then what ended up happening is three or four years into it, as we became uh, successful with Sovereign's Capital, we're finding that a lot of people are coming to us that we couldn't invest in. It was the wrong stage or the wrong industry or wrong geography, and uh, which is not too different from any other of the big firms, Andreessen Horowitz and Battery and Sequoia and people like that. But our problem is that these are all faith-driven entrepreneurs and we got into this. And so... Uh, we want to be an encouragement to them. And now you, when you say no 98, 98 out of 100 times, a lot of people are not feeling encouraged, right? So we started this ministry that I was talking about at the, the beginning of the, the show, which is Faith Driven Entrepreneur, daily blog, weekly podcast, monthly newsletter. And, uh, and that's, that worked out really well for a couple of years. But then we ended up finding out um, that as successful as the podcast was, and we've got, I don't know, listens in 140, 150 countries or something like that, that um, when an entrepreneur is looking for a check from you for $250,000 or 500000 or more, and you send them a link to a podcast, you haven't necessarily scratched their itch. So that came about, about the same time we realized that as cool as Sovereign's Capital is, um, it is most assuredly not the only way that a faith-driven investor might deploy their investment capital in a way that honors God. And so we started Faith Driven Investor as a means of let's look at other ways that somebody serious about their faith might deploy investment capital that might accomplish some ministry goals along with their investment goals. And so started looking at funds that were excellent in real estate, domestic and overseas that involved some sort of ministry and what they did that were in delivering great market results and looked at private equity and public equity. And that gave birth to Faith Driven Investor. And the new thing we've got now that we just launched in, in this alpha version is the Faith Driven Investor Marketplace. So taking some of those 98 out of 100 businesses we couldn't invest in because, you know, wrong stage industry or geography 
you know, great deals in Eastern Europe or in Africa run by somebody really serious about their faith, putting them up on a website and allowing accredited investors, many of whom are, are investors and sovereigns, to be able to look at some of these deals and find um, direct deals that they'd invest in or find funds that they could invest in. It's connecting capital with a cause um, because obviously, you know, I would say as an investor, you, you certainly want to invest in things that are sustainable, that are good for the the people involved for the planet for, uh, but also good uh, that's sustainable from a financial perspective. I mean, it's not a 501 C three organization. So um, I love the vision. I want to talk about how you evolved because you started more in the venture space. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And then you evolved into both venture as well as operating companies. Yes. Talk about how that transition happened um, and then sort of the structure. Of, uh, do you all raise funds for, for these or is it on a deal by deal basis? How does that all work? What, what we do, um, take the most recent first. Yes, we do raise funds for them. We've now on, are on Sovereign's Capital Fund 3. Um, and what happened was, it, some, it was we started Sovereign's Capital. People would come to us and say, listen, we are motivated by our faith and we have an HVAC dis- distribution and supply business. And uh, we'd like for you to invest in this. I'm like, no, no, we only invest in fast growth companies, kind of like a bandwidth type of thing. And after doing that for a while, but looking at these businesses, they're like, you know what? These businesses are really interesting. I mean, they're not sexy is an overused term, but you know, not you know, you know, they're not you know, Elon Musk isn't involved in them, but they actually make money. They're just they're solving a problem. And they're, they're doing it with excellence. They're able to prove it by the fact that they're making money. They've got great customer validation. And maybe we should look at them because, you know, we got into this business believing that business owners and entrepreneurs can really make a difference in their community and in the lives of the families that they serve and employ. And these are companies that are already employing a couple hundred people. And, um, and you can get in at entrance valuations that are multiple of earnings rather than a multiple of revenues. And since earnings is actually the point of business, not revenues, maybe we should start looking at them. So we started um, uh, looking at, at that space three or four years ago and really stepped that up. So that's the majority of our investing now. We, have, uh, we still have a venture arm uh, run by a guy named Jake Thompson who just moved from Washington DC down to Durham. And uh, we're fun, continuing to find some great businesses and we've made some really, really exciting investments in some really fast growth companies that are kind of changing the world. But uh, the majority of what we do is in businesses that have already changed their worlds. They're in a community. A lot of times they're the largest employer in that community. Uh, they've been successful. There's a generational transfer. The older generation is saying, you know, gosh, we really think that it's time to potentially uh, move on the next generation um, doesn't have the capital to buy the older generation out. Maybe they've got some of that. Maybe they can do some of that and earn out, but also really wants to expand. You know, they want to grow. Uh, they don't want to see the business, the cash cow necessarily. And they know that they can go ahead and they can buy a couple of their um, competitors in adjacent markets. And maybe they can actually, you know, increase this thing from growing 5% a year to growing 20% a year, which is different than the venture, venture world. We're looking at growing at 100% a year. But um, we can provide growth capital for those businesses. In some cases, we can pay out those businesses. And they've already got a great culture. They've already got, uh, particularly the ones that are, um, were founded by men and women that are serious about their faith and really wanted to be a blessing to their workforce and their customers and their community. And so lo- what does it look like for us to maintain that culture? Um, the alternatives for some of those companies is to sell out to 
private equity in New York and, and the corporate chaplain's taken out and, and the, the cultural vibe is taken out. Maybe there's, you know, you kind of buy the company up and sell off some of the parts and that doesn't always happen. I don't want to overstate that, but um, we love coming alongside those businesses and helping them to maintain their culture and then to expand it with the help of the next generation people that have been in the business for years. I've been interviewing several or I've interviewed several investors uh, lately that are more sort of um, permanent capital uh, that have permanent capital bases. And a lot of what they talk about is, is the incentive structure, which is, you know, either fix and flip or more so long-term hold, keep the, the culture intact and use the current base to, to grow and to, uh, to have a long-term be a long-term home for that, for that business uh, to support the community. It's, it's just not all about the bottom line. Um, one guy in particular that I really enjoyed uh, speaking with was Michael Arietta uh, from Atlanta, who started this, uh, this, this company called Garden City, and he's seeking to, to buy service businesses and to kind of infuse it with a, a sense of you know, purpose and sort of uh, equity for the employees. It's obviously a faith-based business, um, but I, I think that uh, from- I did just, a podcast interview with Mike yesterday. Did you really? Mike's great. Yeah, Mike's a good friend. I love his heart, and, uh, and uh, I personally invest in his fund because I think he's doing some neat things with it, but it's funny that you just bring that up. Yeah, no, he so so people like that who seek to be long term culture aligned uh, holders of and investors and deployers of capital, I think, are what is needed, uh, especially from the faith based community, from the Christian community, to be good homes for these businesses. So, I like how you all have evolved your vision. Do you all um, hold for the long term? Do you have terms on the funds? How how, do, how does that work? How's that how's that structured? So a great question. So we are not a permanent capital structure, though I like that a lot. I like what Mike's doing a lot. Um, Warren Buffett has obviously done it with Berkshire Hathaway. And I think that you're going to find that um, some of our subsequent funds will be in the permanent capture, uh, permanent capital model. Um, but we tried to uh, engineer some things into our most recent fund that allows us to have something that's more akin to that. Um, number one, we're a 12-year fund instead of a 10-year fund. We also have the ability to transfer the assets from fund three through an independent arbitration process to a permanent capital, capital structure. So we found that many of our LPs were still looking for the, the more of the 10-year, 12-year term structure as they thought about investing. And um, but, so we wanted to have the best of both worlds. Right. Um, and so we don't have to, when we go into a business, we don't have to say that we ever have to sell because we don't have to sell. We've got 12 years, um, uh, and then plus, then we had the ability to go ahead and pay back the LPs in that third fund, a fair, independently validated price, and move that that um, that asset into a new independent structure that may be permanent capital. So we've got a little bit of a kind of a of a creative hybrid structure to how we do that, but. Uh, there are a bunch of different ways to look at it, a bunch of different ways to do it. What you don't want to do it is you don't want to be in the, the traditional um, seven to 10 year structure where there's like real pressure to go ahead and sell in five years, which is to flip it. And then um, that's not a bad day to be clear. That's not an awful place to be as an investor. Um, if the culture of the company doesn't matter as much, if you're looking at just a, you know, an IRR, this is just about, I just want to make money. Uh, there's a lot of money that can be made in taking companies, hollowing out some of their um, expenses, taking out some of what they would call, what you might call redundancies is you 
piece together a bunch of HVAC distributors or dry cleaning manufacturers um, and, and take out their cost and then repackage them and then sell them up, uh, sell them up to larger private equity. There's big money to be made there. But we got into this space because we really believe that entrepreneurs and business owners are these, again, cultural change agents. They're loving their community. So um, we're as interested, really more interested in the cultural dynamic in some of these towns. And, um, um, and that's why we do what we do. What we, we do want to be great fiduciaries and great and deliver our, our LPs great returns. And through the grace of God, we've done that. But uh, it's not all about just making money for us. No, and that's, that's, that's sort of the way I'm, I'm wired as well. I'd rather have, um, you know, a, a 14 to 16% return for, for 30 years and have done right by everyone in the community uh, than a, a 30% IRR for five, five years. But uh, you, leave, you leave it worse than you, you bought it for. So I want to transition to the faith-driven entrepreneur, faith-driven investor. But before we get there, I have one last question on Sovereigns, which is basically, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're selling a product or a service that meets a need. As an investor, you're selling capital and, and yourself. So what differentiates sovereigns from other potential uh, investors? Maybe, maybe not so much just faith-driven, but, but just investors in general. From the perspective of LPs that are investing in us or from, well, Entre- maybe the from an entrepreneur's, yeah, the entrepreneur's perspective. Yeah, so we're, we're fun staffed by operators. We're a bunch of guys who run businesses before and we get all geeked out by just you know, rolling up our sleeves and, and talking about how are we thinking about HR and the comp plan and, and uh, channel conflict and, and things like that. It's just kind of how we're wired. Um, we have, uh, we have got a good financial team, but we're not financial engineers. You know, we're not, we're not optimizing for the last um, uh, legal thing. And I, I don't want to, by saying that, I don't want it to sound like I'm disparaging people who are pure financial investors whose background and training is on financial engineering, because that's, I, I think, also a, a fine vocation. It's just that we're, we're guys that have run businesses and that's where we really, that's what we really like. So we spend probably less time than others, maybe on talking about capital structures and how to talk about ongoing financing for the business. We're more about how do we just execute on what we've got in front of us and how do we come alongside management and and that's just, that's just more fun for us. That makes perfect sense. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get a chance to chat with you. You're um, an investor uh, where you're an entrepreneur with an investor's hat on, I guess is the way I would put it. So, well, let's, uh, let's transition to the faith-driven entrepreneur and investor uh, organization. So what's the long-term vision for faith-driven entrepreneur? Well, long-term vision is that there's a time 10 years from now where every person who's motivated by their faith, who's a business owner and entrepreneur, like really leans into it. They're like, they're fully alive. They bring them their whole selves to work. And it's not like they're just like uh, passing out tracks at work or, or, you know, they've got fish on their van or something like that. It's just that they're able to, to run a business with integrity. And by integrity, it means the whole selves, the, the, everything they are. And, and so, uh, you know, one of the things, and you see this in the work of Simon Sinek, who's got that great TED.com talk about the why of leadership. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you come to understand is that it's really effective when a leader can talk about why they do what they do. And the Wright brothers did that and Steve Jobs did that and the Simon Sinek video is just so good. But most faith-driven entrepreneurs don't feel very comfortable in talking about their faith because they don't want to come across as being preachy. They don't want to come across, across as being exclusive 
um, you know, we're in kind of a different type of political environment, cultural dynamic right now where um, uh, they may feel pressures. They shouldn't, but many, but I felt it this way. So I, you know, I can identify, but um, uh, where they just don't feel comfortable in talking about their faith and looking to point to God as being um, the greatest purveyor of hope. And that's what we need in this world right now. We need hope. We need a healing of the land. We need hope. Well, the ultimate hope happens with this eternal mindset through this guy who loves us. Um, I would say that most entrepreneurs really don't lean into that, understand that their businesses are a great opportunity for them to have this platform where they can have a winsome cultural witness that gets, gives them a chance to share the reason for why they do what they do with gentleness and respect. So faith-driven entrepreneur is about a, working towards a world in, in 10 years where that's just commonplace. Where, of course, if you're motivated, motivated by your Christian faith, you can talk about that in a winsome way, not an over-the-top way or a prescriptive or a presumptuous way. Um, and so what does that look like? Well, it looks like equipping and empowering uh, faith-driven entrepreneurs with stories of other faith-driven entrepreneurs where they're encouraged by other stories where men and women are really working out and, and learning lessons and making mistakes, but having victories and working with churches and being able to cast an alternate imagination about what does it look like to do ministry. It's not just full-time ministry in, in the church or in the missions field, but it's really being out there and being in business. Um, too long. This is changing to be clear. But for a long time, it was you know, the role of a business entrepreneur in the world of God is make as much money to be able to, to write checks to a lot of those overseas missionaries. And that's still part of it, to be clear. There's an opportunity to take our financial wealth and to be able to encourage others that are doing some ministries and working with orphans and, and going to really, really difficult places. And yet, really, we are in the mission field. And um, that's what we're working for. And it's just a community of people. It's a movement. It's movement more than an organization. And that means that if other organizations accomplish that same goal, like there's a great organization you mentioned before, Praxis. It, that means that if uh, when we need to see if Praxis is in the best spot, as they often are, to advance that cause towards that reality of this vision of 10 years from now when every faith driven entrepreneur feels confident in their ability to winsomely share their faith, then we need to come alongside Praxis because that's the end goal. It's not the, it's not, it's not our organization and, or our podcast or anything like that. So we spend a lot of our time working with other organizations. Um, we uh, write some grants to other organizations and cause it's really about this movement. I like that. The one, one question that I've always, um, well, I've read uh, Tim Keller's book, uh, Every Good Endeavor. One, one question that's always been interesting to hear people's responses and their thoughts on are, you know, as a Christian, what, what is the purpose of work? What is the purpose of work? Uh, well, the purpose of everything, and I listen, the last time I really knew what I was doing was when I sold t-shirts in college. That's the last time I was really an expert in anything. Ever since then, I've just I've just been out doing things and I've gotten away with it. Okay. So um, this is my background to me walking into the world of theology, but I have a, but I have a view on it. So what's the purpose of work? Um, uh, I think that the chief end of man, and I'm going to parrot some Calvinism here, but the chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. Um, or another way to look at it, that's maybe a little bit less Calvinist, 
uh, is that, and I'm an entrepreneur, right? If you put a gun in my head and said, recite the 10 commandments, I, maybe I get all 10, probably just get nine out of 10, but I can do this. I know that all the law and the prophets are summed up in these two things. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the purpose of work? Well, if work doesn't tie into those two things, which is to know God and enjoy him forever and to, and to love God and love neighbor, then it doesn't matter. Okay. So it doesn't matter. So what's the purpose of work? Purpose of work, I think, is to do those things. You know, God works six out of seven days. And the Gospel of John says that his work continues to this day. So if we are, if God wants us to be in relationship with him, the best opportunity we really have is to be doing what he does. And, and since we're creating his image and he's a working God, when we work, you know, Eric Liddell in Chariots of Fire said, when I work or when I run, I feel his pleasure. When we work, we're to feel God's pleasure and to do his work to be close to him, bringing about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We want to be one with this God who wants us, uh, wants us to know him. And so the purpose of work is to know God. The purpose of work is to love God and to love our neighbor. And if it's anything different than that, and that takes us away from those two other goals, then we're in trouble. And here's the reality. The reality is a lot of times it does. I, I mean, how many times have we had for, you know, a lot of your audience probably doesn't have a faith. And I, so I don't want to sound prescriptive or presumptuous or judgmental for sure. But for people in your audience that have a faith, how many times have we, because of our work, not spent time reading the Bible? You know, we're taught that the Bible is God's word. And if we're to know God and enjoy him forever, how can we know him if we're not reading his like instructions in our, and his encouragements and his love letter to us? So a lot of times work ends up being a distraction. It's only when we really see work as really bringing us closer to him that we really stand a chance. But most, yeah, I think that most faith-driven entrepreneurs miss that. They miss it. I miss it. You know, yesterday I didn't do my Bible reading until the nighttime. And then I'm tired and I'm like, you know, I got to read this chapter and I kind of want to write some notes about it. But, you know, guess maybe I can get it done in 10 minutes so I can go to bed on time. You know, gosh, what was I doing? What was I doing for the other 14 hours? None of them were as important as me spending time with God. And yet every day I fall in the same darn trap. Not every day. Some days I get it right, right? Um, but often I don't get it right. And, uh, and so the purpose of work is to know God and enjoy him forever. I, and that's, I, I like simplicity. Um, I'm just a simple guy, so I like simplicity. Good. But <laughs> uh, would you say that, there are particular industries that would just totally fall outside of being able to fulfill that. Uh, if you are a person of, of faith, like does, do, are there, are there complete lines of work that just don't even qualify for that? Yeah, absolutely. The adult entertainment business is a lousy place for a faith driven entrepreneur to innovate in. So this is, um, this is what I was hoping you were going to say. So not, not that, um, but like, more of like just kind of like neutral gray areas. So like we've got all the way from adult entertainment to caring for orphans in, uh, in Ethiopia. Um, I guess that's kind of like the disconnect sometimes for me is the simple answer is to, to know God, to love God forever. Um, so how do you connect that with kind of the day to day? Like, let's just say someone is in law, right? Yeah. What a great place. Anything, anything I say in two glibly about the the part about the adult entertainment business which is kind of a no-brainer look i was in telecom 
I was in telecom and I think it gave us phenomenal opportunities to love God. We had nothing to do with orphans with our telecom business. Uh, we're helping people effectively to save money on their telecom bill. And then you know, with time, it just larger and larger companies to save money on their telecom bill. And yes, there's a lot of innovation, some creativity behind it. And, and then with Republic Wireless, we help families save money uh, in, in some innovative ways that became more than more redemptive, but, 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 it can be anything, absolutely anything. You can honor God. Your work can be really important. If you're a barista, it can be really important. If you're in a in a in a cubicle by yourself working on spreadsheets, what you want to be able to do is you want to be able to get God created us to create, and you want to use all of your giftings and your talents and your experience as your meaningful worship. And if God made you a great spreadsheet guy and you enjoy that, and you see that as an opportunity to worship God with all your gifts, talents, and experience. That is as valid as the person that is out there, um, I don't know, coming up with an innovative way to, to house um, orphans. It, it really is. It's just, it's a, it's, a personal, uh, it's a personal relationship with God where you endeavor to get down on your knees every day and say, God, what would I do to know you better, to serve you better, to love you better? And sometimes people find out that God, they've been doing spreadsheets for six months and God's calling them out of that because they feel wholly discontent and maybe they end up doing something else. But um, it's about, um, it's about knowing God and, and bringing all that you are to him. Can you know, can you honor God as a baseball pitcher? Okay. Putting a baseball over a home plate at 90 miles an hour, you would say can't possibly is be a noble ambition of somebody that like Brett Hagler, that's you know coming up with new housing technologies. But God made you a great baseball pitcher, Ben. And you do it, and you have an opportunity to love on your teammates. You're out there with other people and fans and all that stuff. And so I don't think, aside from some like no-brainer ones, like like I said with the adult entertainment business, I think that you're, I think you're, I think that just about every profession can really honor God. Yeah, I, I want to pick out one word, which is um, enjoyment, and certainly um, enjoyment within the realms of, um, uh, you know, a biblical ethic, uh, obviously. But enjoyment, I would say, is is hugely important, um, and that's something that's become very important to me. So I, I wanted to pick that that one word out as well. I think it should align with, um, you know, redemptive uh, vision for the world, but also uh, your personal enjoyment, because God designed everybody uniquely. Uh, with different skill sets and um, and interests and passions, so I uh, I want to ask you, like when you were growing up, how did you think about? And obviously, I know you came to faith kind of at a later point in your life, but how did you think about aligning yourself with your passions, your interests, your skill sets, to and bring that to bear on the world in a sustainable entrepreneurial way? Like what, what do you, what advice would you give to young uh, Christian men and women who are, who have that itch and they, they know what their skill sets are, but they're trying to, they're, they're struggling with how to combine it and put it together, if that makes sense. Hmm. You know, I don't know, I, you know, I never took, I never had any type of reflective time to really try to say, um, what should I be doing and what, what should I do to honor God with what I have? And it doesn't mean that I haven't had different struggles in the world and that everything has come easy to me, but with, uh, I always knew the, I always knew the next thing to do. And, um, 
it was, and that's just, it, God has just wired me to see different opportunities and, and look to start things and provide some creative energy behind them to get them going. And so I never was in a spot like, oh my goodness, what do I do next? Or what do I do? Um, but I've uh, been around enough and, and, and seen other people process it. And it seems like a discernment process with people who know and trust you, who know some of your blind spots are, uh, can be really helpful. And probably had I employed them more in my life, I probably would have found more joy and satisfaction too. So the, the, the method that I use of just going and doing the next thing that seemed obvious to me worked out well for me. It may not have been the best way to do things. Um, uh, what might've been a better way or might, what might be the most logical way for people that don't have like the thing that just becomes really obvious in front of them. It's that God created us to be in community with one another. And that's something that's really important. And being in a close group of friends uh, that, uh, that are able to hold you accountable, who really know and love you and who you know and love, who can help provide counsel and help you to uh, understand what your giftings are and what some of the things are that you need to work on and some of the things that you'll never be good at. Um, bringing that debate to them uh, is something that can be really illuminating. And I mean, I know that that sounds really obvious, but I think that that's, uh, I think that people don't do that well enough. I think that they'll go, they'll spend time with an individual friend and say, well, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? But there's something really special about a group uh, of men or a group of women getting together who have been intentional about pouring into each other's lives. There's some liturgy almost about it. It's like every Tuesday morning at Panera, and this is why we're here together. We're here together to be able to understand what God would call us to do and hold each other accountable and to encourage one another. Within context of something like that, really having a serious time where you invite four or five other people in to help you to see opportunities and to pray for you is really powerful. And I know that that sounds pithy and cliche and kind of Christian speak, but I think it's important. I think that God speaks through us in groups. We know that wherever more two or more are gathered, there he is. So we're designed to be able to commune with God with other people. And that's, that's what I'd recommend. And I, I probably should have done more of that um, earlier on in life. And um, I'm grateful for the times I get to do it now. Now that's great advice. And for people who don't, who, who don't subscribe to any faith or maybe agnostic or even atheist, I think everyone is meant for community and everyone should certainly f seek uh, feedback. It's something that I've definitely been learning lately just to seek more feedback about who you are objectively as a person, um, what your strengths are, what other people sort of perceive in you. So I think that's great advice all the way around, you know, regardless of, of where you are in your faith journey. So last question on faith-driven entrepreneur and investor, what are, you, what are you all working on right now that you're most excited about and why? Well, it's this new marketplace. I, for so long, we said no to these businesses that were coming in looking for funding because, again, as, as I said, it's it's a deal that was in Eastern Europe and we don't invest in Eastern Europe or it was in Africa. And at the same time, we have more than 120 LPs, investors in Sovereign's Capital, some of whom actually really do like Eastern Europe. And I don't know which ones are the 120 exactly. I have somewhat of an idea. But the, the thought is, what does it look like for all these businesses that are looking to get like-minded capital 
what does it look like for them to come into this marketplace to share their story of what they're doing and invite others to participate alongside them, where we can highlight the different partners that are educating these people and um, inspiring and uh, equipping these people in Eastern Europe and in Africa, um, uh, where we're able to highlight uh, different deals that have champions. Um, I think about a deal we've got right now where the former vice president of international and Apple is, uh, is a lead investor in this deal. And he's inviting other people to come alongside him because he's spent a lot of time with this young group of, of people and, and, um, and, and he's able to bring that deal with them and, and invite other people to participate alongside. So I think that, that um, I get excited about different types of initiatives that bring the world together, particularly people of faith together. And our hope is that this marketplace does that, finding entrepreneurs of all sorts of different walks, finding fund managers that are serious about having spiritual integration in their, in their funds, being able to come together and then be able to introduce them to, to investors and its family offices, endowments, foundations, and other accredited investors. But hopefully by the end of the year, or, or I should say the, at the end of the next 12 months, we'll have something that's much more Main Street accessible. So you don't have to just be a high net worth investor to participate in something like that. So we with some attorneys are working on how to solve for that. But that's the thing I get. That's the thing I get most excited about. That's awesome. That is awesome. Is it live right now? Can I, is it something I can link to in the, uh, in the show notes? Oh, thanks for that. So we've got it. We've got a private alpha just for, for, um, uh, the investors and sovereigns and some other people, but we're going to have a public beta in January and, um, we are taking some exceptions. So people that are particularly, um, fired up about this space, um, we can talk to them before, uh, January, but, um, we're working on some kinks. But it, yes, it is up and it's live and we've got 75 companies that are up there right now. Fantastic. Okay. Awesome. That's wonderful. Well, uh, I want to wrap up our time together. I know your time is valuable, so I appreciate you, you taking some of it to, uh, to spend it with, uh, with me on the conversation. So I've got a few questions, just three questions that I ask all of my guests at the very end. Uh, the first one is what personal values or beliefs are most important to you and how do they inform your day-to-day business? Now, I feel like we've kind of covered this with the faith, family, work, fitness, but if there's anything you wanted to add, if not, we can certainly go to the next question. So say it again, these are things that are the most important things to me. Personal values or beliefs that are most important to you and how do they inform your day-to-day business? Uh, the personal belief uh, that's the most important for me is that there's this God who loves me, who sent his son to die for me, that without that gift, I'd be in big, big, big trouble. And that I'm invited into the work he's doing in the world as his kingdom is coming on about on earth as it is in heaven. And even though I mess up all the time, I get a chance to experience real joy when I put myself in line with his plan for my life. And I know that that sounds preachy, but that is the greatest truth and greatest value. And I've been, man, I've tried everything else. I've tried everything else. I was went to New York. I was on Wall Street. I was making a lot of money. I was dating lots of girls. I was going to lots of parties. I've spent time. I thought I'd get happiness out of beach houses and ski houses and all these different types of things or just traveling around the world and all those things. And it would provide just momentary, you know, enjoyment to be clear, but the longstanding things that really develop, that really deliver real joy is that, and it's just pattern. I'm an investor. I invest in pattern recognition. So I know that when I really spend time to try to really endeavor to understand and know God, and then, albeit 
incompletely and, and, and sometimes incompetently trying to live into that, I find great joy. And so that's where I am. I like that answer a lot. What advice would you give yourself before starting out as an entrepreneur and investor knowing what you know now? That you don't have to raise money. Everybody will tell you that if you're going to have a successful business, you need to raise outside capital. That's not true. What business hasn't been started yet that needs to be? You see a ton of businesses as an investor. You've started a few businesses that have been super successful. What business (laughs) (laughs) hasn't been started yet, but it needs to be? My favorite business idea that hasn't been started yet, but needs to be is one I actually tried to start. I started with a couple of guys and we did it in a kind of a skunk works lab environment and it just morphed into something else, which became another successful company, which Mike Schneider also in Durham sold to Remax. But we started off by coming up with thinking about different ways to use cloud labor and the business that I get excited about. And part of it, maybe, maybe it's, it's popping in my mind, Benton, because you're a former professional baseball player, but uh, is to take, uh, is to reinvent the collectibles industry and to take hundreds of thousands of baseball cards, lay them out on the floor, take a picture of them, use computer vision to tell people what they have in terms of their collectibles, um, to be able to link into a marketplace, to be able to use cloud labor for a grading uh, cards, which still is, 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 is stupidly expensive, like 10 or $15 just to grade a card that could be done with high resolution photography across 20 or 30 people that collectively as a crowd say, this is what that, that card is, uh, is valued at or the grade of the card. And I think that there's ways to, again, use crowd uh, computer vision and crowd labor to completely transform the collectibles industry in anything in terms of a marketplace in terms of how things are valued. And I get excited about it because it, it, that when you look at the collectibles business and, and, and how much work that can be done in terms of sorting, it's a great way to be able to employ refugees. And of course, the cloud labor part comes from working with people in Nepal and in Africa. They're able to log into their computers and, um, and having meaningful work overseas. But for whatever reason, as corny as that sounds, that's the idea, the business idea that I continue to think needs to happen and hasn't happened yet. Well, and, and we'll, we'll just be releasing the audio, but for, but so everyone can't see that you've got, you're surrounded by a bunch of collectibles behind you on your bookshelves. So uh, it makes total <laughs> sense to me. You'll, you'll like this. I, um, I ended up buying a, a small rental property from a lady not long ago who actually owns the original, I don't know if it was workers comp or some sort of like personal insurance uh, policy of, it was an insurance policy on Babe Ruth, signed by Babe mm. Ruth. Uh, I asked her if I could buy it from her. She said, you'll have to talk to my kids in about 50 years. <laughs> oh, man. So oh, that's funny. Well, Henry, this has been super fun. I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, you know, best of luck with everything. I'll be sure to link to everything in the show notes. Uh, so if you've got an operating company that you're looking to uh, expand or grow, you know, you can talk to Henry. Uh, I would highly encourage you to go check out Faith Driven Entrepreneur, Faith Driven Investor, which I'll uh, link to in the show notes as well. This has been a fun conversation and it's great to catch up. And it was great to catch up. Thanks for your interest. Thanks, Henry. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, 
you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.